In early 2018, Dennis James from Sydney, Australia, received a phone call from historian Barbara Minchinton. She wanted to ask him about his great-great-grandmother Lizzie, Lizzie Jane Hodgson. She'd been researching his family history for months. I, I read online an article called Sex and the Sisterhood. There was an article about what they called Little Lon or the Lonsdale Street District. I, I knew nothing of it. But it was, there was a map and on the map were marked the different houses along there. And I had a folder of letters, cards and so forth. And some of them came from or were addressed to some of the properties there. So um, I contacted... Um, I think both Sarah and Barbara, but Barbara got back to me. The phone call led to a very colourful character from Melbourne's history finally being understood for the first time. She asked if there were any photos, and I explained that I didn't think so. And then it dawned on me some years before I'd given my niece this uh, photograph album, and I'd given it to my niece as more a decorative thing, but they were just like Victorian studio photos, I suppose you'd call them. We went through where they'd been taken in Grafton and Melbourne. But then as we were going through, I said, oh, these have been, this one in particular has been taken in Brussels. And she was incredibly quiet on the end of the phone. My name's Kate Follington and you're listening to the podcast Look History in the Eye, which is produced by Public Record Office Victoria, the archive of the state government. We preserve 100 kilometres of public records about Victoria's past and they are carefully preserved in climate control vaults. This podcast meets the people who dig into those boxes, who look history in the eye and they bother to wonder why. You can download the original record that began this story by searching Look History in the Eye podcast online. album contained portraits of Lizzie Jane, which was expected. But the real object of Barbara's interest was not Lizzie. It was her sister-in-law, one of Lizzie's best friends. Her name is Carolyn. A familiar name, in fact, in Melbourne's night scene. There's an alleyway named after her. There's a popular rooftop bar, which is adorned with garden chairs serving pastel pink cocktails, named in her honour. But until Barbara traced her family history to Dennis in 2018, no one knew what Carolyn looked like. In fact, they didn't know very much about her at all. We'd simply known her as Madame Brussels, the infamous flash madam who serviced the top end of town in the late 19th century. Rumour had it that there was a tunnel linking her brothel to the state parliament and that there was a parliamentary mace that went missing one night because a client was having a little bit too much kinky fun. But today we put the rumours to rest and we're going to meet the real woman behind Australia's most extravagant 19th century brothel. The story begins with Carolyn Hodgson's will. And it described her as in her will that she'd left her estate to her adopted daughter. Well, a morally putrescent prostitute is hardly likely to have left, to well, to have adopted a daughter and then to have looked after her to the point where she's raised her and left her, her entire estate. So it really 
raised the question for me, well, who was this woman and what sort of things did she do with her life apart from running these famous brothels? Once I had the name of her daughter, which I obtained from her probate documents, I was able to track the life of this young woman. Madame Brussels' real name was Carolyn. She was just over 20 years old when she arrived in Victoria and it wasn't long before she was a well-known name around an area called Little Lon and it was mostly known for its brothels. A cartoon sketched in the newspapers at the time, of course, showed her to be this immoral, witch-like figure that had become the accepted image of Madame Brussels. The truth, however, is quite different. They called her the Princess of Procuresses. They called her the Queen of Harlotry. They called her this morally putrescent prostitute (laughs) and a few more things as well. This moral monster, a hellish harridan, this feculent fiend in female form. So this disgusting drab was another one and that wicked woman. These degrading comments about Madame Brussels have set the tone for how she's been remembered ever since. Even the garden bar named after her continues to use the newspaper caricature in their marketing materials, even though we now know it's quite inaccurate. One of the photos in the album is a beautiful portrait of her in sepia as a young woman with a round, gentle face, and she stares back at us as she calmly leans her elbows onto a fake stone railing. A photo of a stone bridge is in the background and her spiralled hair is pinned back with a bow on top of her head and locks of curly hair fall casually over her shoulders. A velvet choker is tied around her neck and her Victorian 1880s bustle dress is tight at the waist but billows out behind her with layers of silk emphasising an over-padded buttocks. Carolyn is dressed in the latest European fashion and if I'm correct in dating it to the 1880s, at that time she was one of the wealthiest businesswomen in Melbourne. Not bad for a single woman in her 30s living in a colonial outpost on the other side of the world. The importance of the the photographs that we've gained about Madame Russell, they provide us with a number of things. The earliest of the photographs is quite, she's looking quite simply dressed. It's not a complex um, outfit that she's wearing, whereas... The later ones, where, which would have been in the period when she was operating the, bro- the brothel, are extraordinarily beautifully sewn, quite complex um, pieces. They're obviously silk and so on. There is a story that the family provided us with about when Carolyn Hodgson, she used to go to Sydney to visit her sister-in-law. She was very close to her sister-in-law and her sister-in-law had a little little girl And at a certain point, her sister-in-law and that little girl decided to come down to Melbourne to visit. And they hopped on the train to come down to Melbourne and they're in a first-class carriage and who should be sitting next to them but Nellie Melba, who commented about um, this woman's jewellery and how lovely her jewellery was. So I think we can take it from that that she travelled in the best of circles.
She arrived in Melbourne in the 1870s, which was the perfect time for success, because by 1860, Melbourne had gone from being this little-known colony in the Antipodes, way off in the Southern Ocean, to a city that exported two tonnes of gold a week back to England to pay off its global debt. The population of Victoria went from 70,000 people to over half a million in a decade. It goes without saying that a port city like Melbourne, flush with the production of gold, attracted European investors, entrepreneurs and really savvy, intelligent businesswomen. And Madame Brussels, Carolyn Hodgson, sat among it. She was running a high-end brothel servicing the wealthy men of Melbourne. The politicians, the landowners, the men with power. Caroline Hodgson was born in Germany. She married in London. She married an Englishman. I don't know anything about behind that time other than that she describes her father as a gentleman. The man she married was um, of a very good English family, generals and major generals in the British Army. They came to Australia in 1871, I think largely because her husband's brother was already here in Melbourne. How did this 20-year-old young married woman become one of Melbourne's flashiest brothel owners? It's a good question. It's one I've mulled over. Her husband left her, I think is probably the simple answer. He joined the police force after they arrived, not long after they arrived, maybe a year or two, and went off up country. She stayed in Melbourne and set up a boarding house and from there I think probably discovered that there was a lot more money to be had in a particular kind of boarding house than in the ordinary domestic kind which serviced both men and women. So she always described herself as a boarding housekeeper for the rest of her life and that's effectively what she did. She ran a boarding house for a particular kind of um, woman doing a particular kind of a job. It seemed to me that her European style and obvious intelligence must have endeared her to the well-educated because she mixed with such influences within the Melbourne scene. There was a description of her in the newspapers in 1903. The fair-haired, well-behaved, quiet little woman was really charming and possessed an insinuating, subdued, placid beauty bordering on the aesthetic. Above all, she was clean of speech and angelically demure. She had none of the loudness and vulgarity associated with the common, fleshly, boozing, boisterous women who follow illicit pleasure as a profession. In short, Madame Brussels was a perfect little lady. So in the early 2000s, archaeologists dug up 600,000 artefacts just purely from the Little Lawn section of the city because a huge high-rise office block was going to be built over the site. Look, I think partly it's like an entertainment culture. So I think it's coming into it, it being a bit of a sort of bohemian underworld, something a bit that, that's a bit attra- attractive and a bit exotic and somewhere that men who are, you know, working at the old Treasury Building or <laughs> Parliament, they can go there and, and be entertained. And so it's not necessarily just about sex, but also about, um, I think, perhaps men coming there and feeling, you know, special and pampered and having like an experience. It's almost a bit, you know, that's a bit different. And it's not just going to the pub with your mates. It's something a bit more exotic and exciting than that. That's urban archaeologist Sarah Hayes from the Alfred Deakin Institute talking about the Little Lawn District in the 1870s and 1880s when it was at its heyday. 
And it was Sarah's job to put the pieces back together, between the artefacts and the people who lived there. So what we're looking at here is it's a kind of a mid-green uh, bottle. It looks very much like a sort of beer or champagne bottle from the 19th century. It's an older style but still fully recognisable as one of today's beer or wine bottles. Um, but the unique thing about this one is it has a seal on it. Um, it's a glass seal and on that seal it says E. Pernod Cuvée, which actually gave us a tip-off to finding the manufacturer of the contents of this bottle. And it turns out that this is actually an absinthe bottle, not a beer or wine bottle. Uh, absinthe was a hallucinogenic beverage um, in the 19th century, very popular in Bohemian Paris. People probably remember it from the Moulin Rouge movie. So, yeah, and so we kind of think that this absinthe bottle really ties into sort of a bit of a Bohemian um, kind of subculture in Melbourne at the time. There was a performance involved in drinking absinthe, which is, which is quite sort of evocative as well. And it was a process of, um, you had a special absinthe spoon that you would put over a glass with a sugar cube on top and then pour ice cold water over it. And as the water went through the sugar cube into the absinthe, it would become cloudy and look kind of quite mysterious. And and um, and that's where I guess it plays into the hallucinogenic side of things and then the fairy that's associated with it and all of that. So there was sort of a performance and a culture around consuming it. And, and I think that's why we haven't really found bottles like this at pub sites. It's not so much a pub drink uh, uh, in Melbourne or in Victoria in the Gold Rush era, but it's certainly kind of, you can see that it would perhaps relate more to the brothels, which weren't just, uh, some of the brothels in Little On, they weren't just about, um, you know, <laughs> a short time sort of thing, but others were really entertainment establishments with food and drink and, and that sort of whole kind of experience, I guess. I think it's also really important to remember that at this time, Europe was going through a cultural revolution. More and more music halls and dance houses and art cafes were emerging. The district of Montmartre in Paris was gaining notoriety for its bawdy shows, for its open sexual entertainment culture. The can-can was being introduced. Women were showing their legs for the first time. And it was the beginning of the modern art and music movements. And Carolyn Hodgson, we know, was European and we know that she used to travel back to Europe, mixed with local opera singers and musicians, and she probably brought back with her a little taste of this emerging culture into her brothels and into her gardens. How did a single woman in her 20s living in Melbourne, when women were not even allowed to purchase property, manage to buy, in the end, five houses? She couldn't have started from nothing, so the question has to be asked, was she a sex worker herself? The question is not an easy one to answer, obviously. There are certainly indications that she was flirtatious at times and that 
um, but a lot of that comes from the men who were her enemies, so who knows. But in her probate documents, there is a curious item on the, on the inventory, and it's an item called, uh, which is described as a bent coin inside a silver purse. What is this silver, this silver purse for? What's the coin? Recently I was reading articles by archaeologists talking about how sex workers in other countries dealt with the issue of contraception. And one of the things they said was that women used coins attached to the cervix by Vaseline or whatever it was called at that time as a contraception, as a, as a blocking device. And I thought it makes sense. First of all, that the coin is bent would probably provide more protection and be easier to attach. And second, that it was important enough to her that she kept it inside a silver purse. Madame Brussels was known to arrive in her own private carriage with drivers. She owned a large home in St Kilda, living among the elite of Melbourne society. She was often described as mixing with women like Dame Nellie Melba, music critics, writers, legislators. She was quietly confident. Madame Brussels is now the owner of a number of houses, which, at great expense, have been connected, forming a labyrinth of elegantly furnished rooms sumptuous marble bathrooms and comfortable cosy nooks. Madame Brussels' own bedroom is connected with a secret passage leading through a beautiful garden to a door in the high wall which separates it from Little Lonsdale Street. She actually had about five houses in Lonsdale Street. These were large establishments. that They were very well furnished. And she supposedly was actually training the women as well because she was working with if you like, the, the elite of, of male society in Melbourne at the time, the women were expected to be able to speak nicely. There's another brilliant story about her that I uncovered recently where she, I suspect when she was renovating the property that she bought, she needed to move out for a time. So she hired another house from another flash madam um, for five weeks, and she hired it at three pounds a week. It was fifteen pounds, but she never paid it. And when the other flash madam took her to court claiming that money, she had the sheer effrontery to argue in court that the woman had knowingly rented it to her for immoral purposes, so she didn't owe her anything. And the court agreed. And each of the properties that she bought, and she bought about five or six properties, each of them she had a grand um, deposit in cash and you can look at the records of all her her borrowings, her mortgages and see that she paid them off very quickly. She took a short mortgage for a short time, paid it off and moved on. There was no doubt in, there's no doubt in my mind that she was smart. Carolyn used her trade to her advantage in this instance but the reality is prostitution may have been considered immoral but it wasn't illegal. One historian, Raylene Francis, suggests that it was likely a form of contraception for some families. This was the 1870s. You couldn't just go down to the 7-Eleven for a packet of condoms. Women had very limited job opportunities 
outside domestic work. There was domestic service work they could do. It was very low pay. And in fact, there was no way that it was a livable wage for a woman who had dependence. So there was factory work. There was, um, well, a limited amount of that. But really, in terms of women with young children, the choice for many women was either complete poverty or a bit of sex work on the side. And it didn't mean that they were necessarily professionals all the time, every day. And I think it's it's led me to think about what sex work meant to people in Victorian times. And it seems to me that the double standard is very much at work. And I think it's very much at work even now that women were vilified for something that was, in fact, an accepted form within the culture that she was operating in. Otherwise perfectly respectable people were doing these things that we as ordinary middle-class people probably now think are disgraceful. You might think from these stories that Carolyn may not have cared about the women who worked for her, but again, the records beg to differ. I think perhaps we can infer some things about her employment by the fact that a number of her employees stayed with her for a lifetime. There were some that joined her very early in the 1870s and they were still there when she um, closed up shop in in the early 1900s, including um, several who she actually left them houses to live in. One of them, in fact, she'd gone off to Germany um, for about a year and she left one of them in charge of the brothel while she was away. And I got a good insight into the difference that prostitution could make to their lives when I was reading this old newspaper report from the Weekly Times in 1889. The headline was The Case of Madame Brussels. Um, This is a court report. Two girls, Ellen Golding and Mary Lawrence from Footscray, both 19, were witness in a case against a Lottie Temple, who was accused of running a disorderly house. That's basically a euphemism for a brothel. The two girls met Lottie on Burke Street one day and she asked them if they were looking for situations, which is another word for work. And they said yes, and they were taken to Madame Brussels, who told them that she didn't need waitresses, what she needed was lodgers, aka sex workers. It details how much they were being paid previously at a draper's shop. So at a draper's shop, they were earning nine shillings a week, working long hours. Whereas the newspaper report then detailed how much they paid as lodgers at Madame Brussels. They paid her £3.10 shillings a week. That's eight times what they earned at the drapery. So presumably they would have earned even more to keep for themselves. She was accused of procuring two young girls for her brothel. In fact, the case didn't, didn't charge her with procuring. It charged her with something else, which was entirely relevant and and none of the evidence went to show that it was true anyway. But the magistrates acquitted her. And when she left the court, there was a man watching who was so horrified by the sight of Carolyn Hodgson and the women around her celebrating the fact that they had been acquitted, that he effectively hated her for the rest of her life and he hounded her and he was one of the major architects of her um, reputation that has come down to us today. He was a, um, a fire and brimstone preacher against vice. Henry Varley. 
By the 1890s, the alcohol temperance movement lumped the sex industry with the moral degrading of the city, and Madame Brussels became a public target for newspapers like The Truth. And this continued right up until 1906, when prostitution was made illegal. In a court report from her divorce proceedings in 1906, when she was filing for divorce from her second husband, Jacob Pohl, her lawyer explained that she had diabetes and pancreatitis. By then, she was 55 years old and she wasn't well. By 1907, the police used the new legislation to charge as many of the brothel owners as they could, including Madame Brussels, who quickly closed up shop and cleared out her female workforce. The sad thing about all of that is that it went from a business which was being run by women to a business which was forced to run underground, was pushed right into the back lanes with protection rackets and so on. She was too ill to carry on the work anyhow and she died in 1908, just a year later. Leaving, as we know, the will and probate record which started Barbara on this interesting research journey in the first place. When she died, ironically, she asked to be buried next to her first husband. Her husband came back after 20 years up country. He came back with TB. So what did she do? She put him up in a house. She provided a nurse for him, um, a housekeeper, and he died there in her house. Now, you could look at it and say, well, then he turned around and left her his money. But even so, I think to take a man in after this, it says something about her, that she had a measure of generosity about her. And the name of her brothel? Why was it called Madame Brussels? In the photo album, there is an image of her taken shortly after her wedding. A young woman and her new husband are seen enjoying the city of Brussels. No doubt she had fond memories of the life she had imagined at that time versus the life she ended up leading in Melbourne. If you'd like to see the original will and probate record that started this research, go to Public Record Office Victoria and type in the name Carolyn Pohl with an H in the search bar and look for the year 1908 or go to Look History in the Eye podcast online and type in Madame Brussels. 